us that you have made us yours. Uh, God, I ask that this morning that you would please fill us with your spirit, that you would give us hearts with the capacity to hold the truth and the weight of the glory that we're going to look at in your word. We love you. We thank you for the privilege of being able to gather together as your people. We love you and thank you for the privilege of being able to come and to sing praises to you. Um, God, I just pray that you would continue to inhabit the praises of your people and that you would fill each one of us with your spirit this morning and that you would have your way among us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Good morning. You can have a seat. Good to see you guys. If you've got your Bibles, grab them. Go to Ephesians chapter 1. This is where we've been in the Bible reading plan. Uh, this past week, uh, for most of the year, we've been reading one chapter a week, and we've just been asking you to read that um, every day, and then we'll talk about it on Sundays here as we hit the book of Ephesians. It is extremely rich, as are many of the uh, epistles uh, that Paul and others have written in the New Testament, and so we're just taking a half chapter at a time and going to talk about it each week as we read it over and over throughout the week as well. So this week was Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. Let me read it. And then we'll get into it. Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Let's pray one more time. Father, thanks for this morning. Pray that you would open the eyes of our heart, that we may see wonderful things from your word. We commit this time to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Ephesians is my favorite book of the Bible. Um, All of God's word is good, but Ephesians just has a special place in my heart, mainly because of the impact that it had on me very early on after uh, God saved me, is Ephesians was just a book that I just happened to get into. And uh, man, it is is so rich. If I had to compare Ephesians to anything, I would compare it to a big water balloon that is just ready to burst. Have you guys ever filled a water balloon and you're planning on throwing it at somebody, but you fill it a little too full, and then you go to chuck it and it like bursts in your hand? You're all very kind. No one's ever thrown a water balloon at anybody. I'm the only one that's ever done that, apparently. But that's what happens um, sometimes. And that's that's what I felt like this past week. I uh, uh, 
as we were praying this morning, I prayed for my own emotions, which I do a lot. Um, I can tend to be an emotional guy, and I just pray that the Lord would give me proper emotion this morning as we talked about this, because there were times even this past week on Wednesday, I was studying this up at the hub, and I... um, and again, my emotions are neither here nor there. It's the truth of the Word of God is what matters. But I was sitting there studying this this past week, and I, I had to stop for about 20 minutes. And I just turned around and looked out my window there in my little office and, and uh, just had tears running down my face. Because if Ephesians, especially these first couple chapters, I, I can't tell you in my own life, guys, how the truth in these first couple chapters, it has, it has never failed me. It has just never, ever failed me. I, um, when I was newly saved at about 19 years old, or where God really grabbed a hold of my, my life, I uh, very early on had heard of several men of God that had memorized entire books of the Bible. And so in my youthful zeal, I set out to memorize Ephesians. I didn't even come close. I got like the first chapter and a half memorized. But I, I cannot tell you, I cannot tell you just that little bit of truth in the first chapter and a half, how even after 20 years of following Jesus, that when life has been difficult, when marriage has been hard, when parenting has been hard, when finances have been hard, when the future has been uncertain, how I, I have laid in my bed at night or have been driving down the road. And when I haven't known what to do, I've always known that I could come back to this chapter. And I just begin to quote it. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ, even as he chose us in him, and just over. And It has never failed me. It has never failed me. And and I say that this morning, not in any boast or self-aggrandizement that I memorized this, but guys, the word of God, the word of God is true. And his promises will stand. And, And if I had to compare the truth, just another analogy, I guess, that we're going to look at over the next several weeks, about 12 weeks in the book of Ephesians together, I, 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 there, are, there are some of the most massive doctrinal theological ideas in this book, especially in these first 14 verses, that you'll find anywhere in the Bible. And, and I want to make sure we understand how we're to view these doctrinal truths, because I think like many times, many of us, if we viewed our Christian life as a house, we think that doctrine or theology are just some nice little pretty pictures that we hang on the wall to make our environment more aesthetically pleasing. That's not what it is. These doctrines, these truths, aren't just pretty little pictures that we hang on the walls. They are the, found, they are the bricks in the foundation upon which the house stands. And so many of us live like we're on shifting sand because, because we've not put these things in our foundation. And they're massive. And many times we talk about these theological realities and, and I'll hear people say things like, you need to take this idea and wrestle through it and, and, and wrestle it to the ground. And I know what they mean. In fact, I would, in, in some ways, 
um, encourage you to do that as we go through Ephesians to, to wrestle with these theological ideas. But I want to tell you something. You will not wrestle them to the ground. They will wrestle you to the ground. They will take you down. When you begin to wrestle with the sovereignty of God, and even as we see here in the very outset, again, Paul's not, he, he just jumps right into it. That God chose us in him before the foundation of the world, before we were ever around, before we ever had anything to say about it or, or could do about it, God had a plan. And our minds can't comprehend that because our, our little lives are finite. The Bible's very clear that our lives are like a vapor. They're here today, and then they're gone tomorrow, and, and, and it's over. But God has always been. He's the great I am, unchanging. And we cannot even begin to comprehend them. And so I would encourage you to allow the truths in this book over the next several weeks and all of Scripture to wrestle you to the ground. Because there is a, there is a peace and a joy and a delight and a love and a passion that will enter your heart when you allow these weighty truths to come into you and to have their way in your life. There, there are so many reasons, other reasons I could give as well for why we need Ephesians. Ephesians is very much about our identity, and we are confused about our identity, folks. We're confused about our identity as a nation. We're confused about our identity as individuals. We're confused about our identity as a church. We're confused about our sexual identity. We're confused about our identity and the, the history of who we are. We're confused about our, our, our ethnic identity many times. But in Christ, we have been given a new identity. And our identity is to be in him. And we desperately, desperately need, need to hear this. So I have, once again, I feel like, so last year, for those of you that call Mercy Hill home, you remember that we were reading through the entire New Testament in a year, and so we read um, five chapters a week, one chapter a day, five days a week through the whole New Testament last year, and then I would just pick one of those chapters or a portion of one of those chapters and preach through it, and I shared with you many times last year about how frustrated I was by it in some ways, a good frustration, because anytime you're dealing with the Word of God, it's, it's good, but um, I was frustrated because I just, I, I, it was hard to pick, it was hard to choose, and I find, found myself very much in the same conundrum this morning uh, with just these first 14 verses. I want to say up front that in some ways what I will do this morning and the things that I'm going to talk about are going to frustrate you because I'm going to throw out very big theological ideas and I'm going to talk about them for like five minutes when literally you could spend a lifetime talking about these things. And so it may create more questions than answers. I hope to give, to give some answer, obviously, but just know that I'm aware of what I'm doing. I'm aware that I'm probably frustrating you. Um, and that's okay. But here's just kind of the two, the two hooks that I want to put in our mind to kind of look at some of the stuff that's here in Ephesians chapter 1. Is I want to talk about the author of our salvation, and then I want to talk about the aspects of our salvation. I want to talk about the author of our salvation, and then the aspects of our salvation. First of all, the author of our salvation. Why do I say author? Because the author of our salvation is God. Okay, Hebrews says this, he is the author and perfecter of our faith. But one of the things that you'll notice here, if you were reading this carefully this past week, is, um, and you might not have noticed this in your English Bibles, but in the Greek, verses 3 through 14 is one long run-on sentence. Okay, 
Paul would not have done well in an English class, okay? He was the king of the run-on sentence. Verses 3 through 14 are all one long run-on, run-on sentence. And over and over and over again, in this sentence, um, the, the, there's action being done, okay? And God is the subject and we are the object. And you remember this from like, I don't know what this was, like ninth grade English maybe or something, maybe it was earlier than that. I didn't pay attention back then, but I've learned it since. Um, but as you're breaking down a sentence and looking at the different, different parts of it, okay, the action words are called verbs, okay, but the subject of the sentence is the one doing the action, doing the verb, okay, and the object is the one being acted upon, okay, and over and over and over again in this sentence, God is the subject, we're the object. He is the one acting, we're the one being acted upon. This sentence is about God. And like I said, as you go throughout the book, you'll find that it, one of the main themes of the book is our identity. But I love that, you know, as Paul's going to talk about identity throughout these six chapters, he doesn't start by talking about us. He starts by talking about God and who he is. And let me just say that that's a good place to start. The reason we are confused is because we've forgotten about God. The reason that we don't know who we are as a people and as individuals is because we've put God out of the equation, but if we want to know who we are, we've got to start with who God is. And that's what Paul does here. Very quickly, just, 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 just running through, again, we just only skimming the surface in the time that we have this morning. But in verse 3 and verse 6, he is the one that has blessed. In verse 4, he is the one that has chosen. In verse 5 and verse 11, he is the one that has predestined. In verses 7 and 8, he is the one that has lavished upon us forgiveness and redemption. In verse 9, he is the one that has made known to us and, declare, and declared to us the mystery of his will. He is the one that has declared to us and set forth his purpose and his, and his plan. And in verse 13, he is the one who, that has sealed us with the promised Holy Spirit, and then kind of a summary verb in verse 11, I want you to look carefully at verse 11, is that he is the one who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That word for works in the Greek is energio. You can tell where we get our English word energy from. That God is working all of his energy to bring about all of his plans and his purposes. He never, he never stops. He never runs out of energy. How many of you guys have ever counted calories before? Yes. You're so honest about that. Nobody wanted to confess to the water balloon thing, but the calories, you're like, yeah. I've got a little app on my phone, Lose It. It's free. I don't do the paid version, the free version. But I go in and out of seasons where I count, where I count the calories. But do you actually know what a calorie is? We all have heard of it, and you know, we look on the back of maybe some labels or you know, of how many calories are in it. But do you know what a calorie is? Saw a video the other day where somebody was out on the street asking people that, and everybody's like, "Yeah, you know, calorie. It's a well, you know, it's a it's a calorie. But a, a calorie, it's it's a unit of measurement. But it doesn't actually measure weight. Okay, so we we count our calories because you know maybe we're trying to to lose weight or to maintain weight." or whatever, but it doesn't actually measure weight. And by the way, I think it would be easier, honestly, instead of calories on the back of like the, 
candy bar, they would just say, this will make you gain five pounds, okay? And that would be, that would be much more helpful to me personally rather than the calorie thing. I would appreciate that. But, but a calorie is a unit of measurement, and it doesn't measure weight or length or height, but it measures energy. It measures energy. So everything that we do in life, in fact, even just sitting there right now, you are burning calories. Did you know that? You're like, oh, all right, I have to come to church tomorrow. And you're not burning a lot, but everything we do burns, burns calories. And the point being is that in everything we, we eat or take in, we take in, and we've created this you know, concept of the calorie to give us this unit of measurement because we, in order to expend energy, we have to take in energy. You follow me? We, we have to, t- and we get it from food or the liquids that we drink or whatever. Folks, God doesn't do calories. He doesn't run on calories. He, he is the source of all energy in and of himself. And as he pours out continually, forever, he never for one millisecond wanes in his energy. So if I haven't eaten something for a long time, but I'm doing a lot of activity, I begin to shut down, just kind of boom, 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 boom. Kind of robotic. And I need to refuel. God has been pouring out for all of eternity, working his powerful plan. But he has never for one millisecond waned in his energy. He is an infinite source of energy in and of himself. He doesn't need to draw from anything or anyone. Or any, or anybody. And the reason that's important is, is because when we go to accomplish our tasks, when we go to accomplish our mission, it's why at work, you know, you, you get a lunch break. Or maybe you get a 15-minute break in the morning, in the afternoon. Why? Because you need to refuel. You need to recharge. You need to rest. You need to eat something so that you can go on. God never has to stop. And if he would have to stop, for one second, the entire universe would fall apart because Colossians says that he upholds all things by his powerful word. All the time. And that idea there in verse 11 is that he is, he is actively now, according to his purposes, working all things according to the counsel of his will. He's the author of our salvation and He's currently working it out. I think that many times when we talk about these big concepts of God, you know, one of the things we talk about and we're passionate about here at Mercy Hill, in fact, sovereignty isn't just a theological term for us, just a thing in our doctrinal statement, but it's one of our values. One of our values as a church is that we embrace God's sovereignty. We talk a lot about, a, a lot about it, but one of the things that I think is difficult for people to overcome about it in their minds is that when we talk about a God who's in total control, we... We, we can't reconcile that with the pain that we experience in our lives. And so what we do is, in the midst of our hurt and pain, we picture this sovereign God up sitting in heaven on his heavenly couch, kind of eating his heavenly potato chips um, while he watches the pain of our lives unfold on his heavenly big screen. And we think that in the midst of our hurt, in the midst of our very real difficulty, that he just kind of sits there and goes, don't worry about it, guys, I'm sovereign, and reaches for some more of those potato chips. But that is not the picture that God gives us at all of God's sovereignty. He's not a God who is, who is ambivalent or dismissive about our pain. But he's taking all of that energy 
and all of that power, all of who he is, all of his goodness. And he is near to the brokenhearted, the Bible says. And he uses that energy to bind up their wounds. And it says that he literally takes all your tears. Think about all the tears that you have cried over the course of your life because of the pain of either your sin or the sin of others that has been done to you. Every one of those tears, the Bible says, God has taken them. He's counted each one. He's put them in a bottle. And he knows. That's the type of sovereignty we're talking about. Not a God who is far off and dismissive or apathetic to our pain, but one who is near and who loves us. And <clears throat> throughout history, this idea of this large God who has been doing things before the foundation of the world and all that, as we read about in this, in this, these, this chapter here, um, people have you know, debated it, discussed it, argued over it, but they have never changed it. They have never changed it, and they never will. He is the same yesterday, uh, today, and forever. Um, and it is, it is good, it is good news that he is the author of our salvation. Now, talking about the aspects of our salvation, this is where I want to spend the majority of our time. In speaking of the aspects of our salvation, most of us, not, well, I shouldn't say most of us, but many Christians, um, we are what I would call one-dimensional Christians. We, we know that if we trust Jesus for our salvation, that we will be with him in heaven when we die. And hear me, that in and of itself is a glorious truth. Un- unbelievably glorious that I know where I will spend eternity because of what Christ has done. Because he finished the work on the cross. That's why he said with his last breath, it is finished. But I'll describe it a couple different ways when I talk about, so you understand what I'm saying when I talk about one-dimensional Christians, is that not often, but every now and then, I've had a conversation with a couple that's having some trouble in their marriage, and I would describe the husband as a one-dimensional husband, okay? Because here's the one verse that he knows. Out of everything the Bible says about marriage, and, and not just the marriage passages, but how we're to love one another, okay? Here's the one verse that the Bible knows, that, that the husband knows. Ephesians 5.22. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. And he comes in and you go, well, but, but the Bible says submit. Yeah, but the Bible says submit. But the Bible says submit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, nobody's arguing that. But there's 50,000 other things that you're neglecting over here. Are you with me? And this is how, it, how we are in our Christianity. Is that we, we, we're, 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 we're one-dimensional. Let me give you another illustration. Like, so I was, a, you know, I'm a basketball guy. It's my favorite sport. There are some guys that because they've spent all their life out in their driveway just standing in one spot, just shooting. They're, they're unbelievable shooters. They can shoot it from anywhere in the gym. But they can't dribble, they can't pass, and they can't play defense. And so therefore, when they actually get in the game, when they get in a real-life situation, they can't get that shot off because they're not just in their driveway just standing back shooting it from wherever. There's somebody guarding them. And they've got to dribble, and they've got to pass, and they've got to try to get open, and they've got to try to set screens or learn how to come off a screen or whatever. They're one-dimensional. And so while they have this one aspect of their game that's pretty good, it really doesn't do them a whole lot of good. 
And it's the same way in our Christian life. Yes, I, it is glorious. It is infinitely glorious that if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you can know where you're going to spend eternity. But folks, there's more to it than that. Are you following me? And so, and this, what I'm going to talk about this morning, these aspects of our salvation, that's what I mean by aspects. Um, this is not an exhaustive list. This is just, a, in fact, it's not even exhaustive for everything that's given here in this passage, but I'm just going to give you five, okay? I'm going to give you five aspects of our salvation, and then this is where I'm probably going to frustrate you because some of them are pretty big, and we're going to talk about them for like five minutes, then we're going to move on, okay? Just for the sake of time. Here they are. Let me give you the list, and then we'll go back through, and I'll unpack what I mean. Election, adoption, redemption, forgiveness, assurance. For you note-takers, I'll say that again. Election, adoption, redemption, forgiveness, assurance. First of all, election. Verse 4. Well, let me start back in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose. What did he choose? He chose us. In him... And I take that to re- mean to be in him. You could read it one of two ways. You could, either, you could either read it as he chose us who are in him or he chose us to be in him because of many other places in the scripture. I won't spend a ton of, ton of time on this. I take that to mean he chose us to be in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Also, verse 5, same idea to chose. It, it literally means it, this is the verb form of the noun form of elect. Other places in the Bible, this is translated elect or election but the same root word. And then also in verses 5 and 11, you have this word predestined, which simply means to mark out beforehand. What did he mark out beforehand? Verse 5, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Verse 11, I've already read this. We'll read it again. Verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance. Why? Because having been predestined, marked out beforehand, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to his will. Now, far and away, this is one of the doctrines that is, that is clearly taught in the Bible that people bristle at. The reason that we bristle at it is because we hate the idea that we are not ultimately in charge or that we are not ultimately in control. And my response to that is, deal with it. Because you can't, let me answer, let me answer just quickly. Again, I just, I know this is skimming the surface. But let me, let me answer four objections to the doctrine of election and of God choosing us in salvation. Okay? First objection is that people think that it's just on the periphery of the Bible. In other words, when people think of this doctrine, many times they'll say, well, that's only in Ephesians 1 and, and, and in Romans 9. That's it. That is absolutely not the case. It is from beginning to end in the New Testament. It's in 1 Peter chapter 1 and 2. It's in 2 Peter chapter 1. It's in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. It's in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, it's all throughout the Gospel of John. All throughout the Gospel of John. It's everywhere in the Gospel of John. It's even in the book of Acts, which isn't so much a theological treatise as much as it is just an accurate accounting of the history of the spread of the gospel in the early church from Jerusalem to Rome and to the uttermost parts of the world. In fact, one of the strongest, one of the strongest statements on God choosing us and on election that you'll find anywhere in the Bible is Acts 13.48. 
And again, what's interesting about that is that Luke, who's writing the book, isn't writing this great theological treatise, but he just, he just mentions it in passing. This was assumed in the New Testament. Everybody, everybody got this. So objection number one, it's not just on the periphery of the Bible. It, it, um, objection number two is that once again, similar to what I said about, um, about God being the author uh, of our salvation and of everything, is we think that this doctrine somehow makes God emotionally disconnected. Okay? Here's what I mean. Again, because we think that God chose us, and when do you do this? Before the foundation of the world, we think that he's now just sitting up there, just emotionally disconnected because he already knows that it's coming, and we can't put those two things together. And I've given you this illustration before, but let me give you a little bit of a human illustration that um, exemplifies how we can know what's coming, yet we can totally be emotionally engaged, okay? And I would point to the idea of the wedding. On that wedding day, February 16th, man, that was bad that I had to think about that for a second, February 16th, 2002, I got married. To Hannah. I, I knew what songs were going to be played beforehand. I knew exactly who was going to be standing at my side, the groomsmen. I knew what songs the rest of the bridal party was going to be walking down to. I knew what song Hannah was going to be walking out to. I knew what we were going to be eating afterwards. I knew what I was going to be wearing. I knew, you, you know, that she was going to be holding flowers as she walked down. Like, I knew all, I knew all this stuff. It was all predestined to happen, right? We'd planned it. And in that moment, when those doors flung open that first time, once again, I was fighting back tears. Just because God, and the Bible's clear on this, chooses us in him before the foundation of the world does not mean that he is emotionally disengaged as people are coming to salvation. The exact opposite. That when one sinner repents and comes to God, which he knew was going to happen because he set it in motion and was drawing them by his spirit, when that happens, all of heaven rejoices. That's what it says. God is not in any way emotionally disconnected, but in his sovereignty he is working together all things for his own joy and purposes and our joy as well. Third objection, we think that God is stingy. And this is where you really see the man-centeredness of us not understanding these doctrines. Is whenever you talk about God choosing, everybody's like, oh, God's so stingy, he only loves a few people. We just got done going through the book of Jonah. Okay? There you see it more clearly than any other place in all the scripture. God is far more merciful than you or I. The Ninevites were not on anybody's radar. Nobody wanted to save the Ninevites. Nobody had great compassion for the Ninevites, but God did. And in his sovereignty, he set it in motion to go and save those people. Folks, don't ever think that you are more merciful or more loving than what God is. He is far more loving. He is far more kind than you or I. Fourthly, the fourth objection is we think that it nullifies human responsibility. We think that God's election nullifies human responsibility. And it absolutely 100% does not. The Bible teaches both. God is sovereign and man is responsible. Um, 
With many of these great truths, I find it extremely helpful to stand on the shoulders of giants throughout history. One of my favorite, just because he, he articulates it so well over and over and over again, was Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon said, From the word of God I gather that damnation is all of man from top to bottom, and salvation is all of grace from first to last. He that perishes chooses, chooses to perish, but he that is saved is saved because God has chosen to save him. Spurgeon goes on in another place, and this is a little bit lengthy, but try to listen closely. Spurgeon says, If then I find taught in one place that everything is foreordained, that is true. And if I find in another place that man is responsible for all his actions, that is true. And it is my folly that leads me to imagine that these two truths can ever contradict each other. He goes on, these two truths I do not believe can ever be welded into one upon any human anvil, but one they shall be in eternity. They are two lines that are so nearly parallel that the mind that shall pursue them farthest will never discover that they converge, but they do converge, and they will meet somewhere in eternity close to the throne of God from whence all truth doth spring. God is sovereign, and we are responsible. In the hearing of the preaching of the gospel, you are responsible to respond. And if you reject it, then you have rejected it. But at the same time, if you are in Christ this morning, it is because God has saved you. Because he has done the work in your heart to open your eyes and cause you to believe. And now we're going to move on from election. <laughs> election, secondly, adoption. So it's said at the end of verse 4 that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. So, so he chose us to be holy and blameless, and the reason we're holy and blameless is because we're in Christ, okay? Because Christ is the holy and blameless one, but we've been given his righteousness, okay? But I, I think and that's good news, but here's how I think most of us live, is, is we, we live kind of like we think we've gotten off on a technicality, okay? So, how many of you guys, maybe this is a bad illustration, but I'm going to use it anyway. Um, how many of you guys remember the O.J. Simpson trial? Yeah. If the glove don't fit, you must acquit. Um, but the O.J. Simpson trial was a big thing back when I was like junior high or high school. I mean, it was just kind of all-consuming in the news cycle and all that. And uh, many people would say that O.J. got off on a technicality because the glove didn't quite fit that they found. And so, but every, a lot of other things pointed to the fact that he did it. Anyway, I'm not making a judgment one way or the other. But what I'm saying is many of us live our lives before God that way. We feel, we feel like we're, we just got off on a technicality, like on a legal loophole. And so we, we know that we're free, we think, but at the same time, we're not really sure that he loves us. But we think we're saved. And that's where this doctrine of adoption is so precious. That right after he says, that God chose us to be holy and blameless, right on the heels of that, same, again, same sentence, same breath, he predestined us for adoption to himself. 
that he doesn't just view us as those who have gotten off on some technicality in his heavenly courtroom, but he views us as those who are his children and can approach him and in whom he loves. Avery, can, can I, or whoever's back there, can I get that one picture up that I sent? This was April 18th, uh, 2019, the day that we adopted little Jordy there, the short guy in the front. Um, we went before a judge, it's the judge there, Judge Kate, and uh, she had him come up because she was signing and had him sign as well this legal document that legally made him ours, Hannah and I's. Um, it's actually, a, it's a birth certificate. Even though we didn't give birth to him, we, we have a birth certificate that says that he's, he's ours. And, it was, he, and he became ours legally on that day, in that moment, at that point in time, because the one with the authority to sign that document signed it. And he became ours. Since that day, he has never been more adopted than he was in that moment. He, he's, he's, he's been ours legally. But over the last couple years, we have had to come back over and over and over again to try to get him to live in the reality that he will forever be ours. He will always be our son. And just like you know, the other three of our boys that are up, that, that were up there in that picture, um, he's just as much our son as they were. 100% ours. And, and I would say that the majority of Christians, we, we know, we know it cognitively that, okay, I'm justified, holy and blameless in his sight, I'm adopted. But we have to come back over and over and over and over again to try to get that reality down in our hearts, just simply to believe it and to live in light of it. One of the little phrases that we've said with Jordy over and over again is, we are your forever family. We are your forever home. Because he'd been in a bunch of them. But not anymore. You are in your forever home. We will be your forever mommy and daddy. Nothing is going to change that. So again, these doctrines here, folks, they're, they're, not, just, they're, they're not just for head knowledge or to hang on the walls of your home. They're, they're, get these into the foundation. Because of what Christ has done, you are his son, you are his daughter. Nothing will ever change that. It'll just be a matter of whether or not you believe it and live in light of it. That's it. You just believe and live in light of it. Third and fourth, I'll give these two to you together, redemption and forgiveness. Redemption and forgiveness. You see these together, and they're, they're all, I'll explain what each one of them means here, and you'll see how they play off of each other. But he goes on, in, after verse 5, having been predestined for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Okay? Redemption through his blood, forgiveness of our trespasses. Redemption 
is the idea of a slave being bought back from slavery and giving freedom. Forgiveness is the idea of one who holds a great debt and cannot pay that debt. Okay? Um, so first of all, redemption through his blood. The Bible says in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 18, it says, Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. And you were ransomed. With what? With the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. This is almost certainly Paul is throwing back here, whenever you see this word redemption used in the New Testament, it's almost always a reference to the Old Testament story of the Exodus. Is that the nation of Israel was in slavery, they were in bondage in Egypt to Pharaoh, um, and the taskmasters under him that were over, that were over them. And the final plague that God sent to set them free, the moment that they then went out from Egypt, out from slavery for the first time uh, in a long time, was that they would put the blood of the lamb over the door, their door, doorposts, and the death angel passed by. And if they had that blood over top, they were not saved because of their own righteousness. They were not saved because they were, themselves were righteous and the Egyptians were not. They were saved by the blood alone. That was it. But in that blood brought them freedom. And that was the final plague that then Pharaoh said, get out of here. And so they got up and they went and they plundered the Egyptians and they walked out to eventually head into a a good land, the promised land that God had chosen for them. But it was the blood that set them free. And if you are living in bondage this morning, it is the blood that will set you free. You have no other hope. And I know that many of you here this morning, like I'm talking, I'm talking to Christians, and you're like, Eric, I, I, I get that, I, I understand that, but I still have this area of bondage in my life. And what I would say to that is, in some way, shape, or form, what is happening is, is that while you know it up here, and while, yes, you're living in the reality of justification, you're not living in the reality of redemption. That you need to believe that the only answer for your sin is not you trying to fix your sin, or not trying to work harder, or not trying to be more legalistic, or put in more effort. The way that you will ultimately overcome your sin is by bringing it over and over and over and over again to the blood of Jesus Christ, by bringing it to the cross. It is the blood alone that sets us free. In the same way, forgiveness, this idea of a debt that was too weighty for us, the, the best place to illustrate this is in Matthew chapter 18. It's a parable that Jesus told. Okay, and I don't have time to go into the whole thing, but let me just draw out one point from it. Matthew chapter 18, in verse 21, Peter comes up to him and he says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and shall I forgive him? And Peter thinks he's just, he's such a generous guy. Okay, Peter goes, should I do it as often as seven times? And Jesus looks at him, no, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven, or 77 times. And Peter's like, oh, oh. And Then he goes on and he tells this story, verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven will be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, a man was brought to him, now listen, who owed him 10,000 talents. Now this is like Jesus saying, there was a man who was brought to him who owed the king a bazillion dollars. One talent was worth 25 years wages, okay? And this guy has 10,000 talents, So 10,000 times 25, that should be really simple because I know you just moved the zeros, but I'm not good at math in my head. Anyway, it's a whole lot of money. Dave Ramsey would not have been happy with this guy, okay? Whatever he did to get in this much debt, this guy, just complete goofball, okay? Moron. And and again, I'm not going to unpack the whole parable there, but, but that's the imagery 
that God uses in that parable to describe what our debt is like before God, the debt of our sin. That we're in debt a bazillion dollars. I don't care if you work a second job, a third job, a fourth job, to try to dig yourself out of the spiritual debt that you are in. It is a crippling debt. And the only answer for your debt before Almighty God is mercy. It is the blood of the cross that alone can save you. And so, Notice too then, in verse 7, he says this then in verse 8, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. But listen, verse 8, which he lavished upon us. He lavished upon us. In all wisdom and insight. Let me tell you what that's not saying. Here's, whoop, here's a little forgiveness. Whoop, whoop, just enough for you. Here's a little redemption. Whoop, 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 whoop. Gets his little dropper out and just, whoop, ever so little. He doesn't do that because that would never solve the problem. He has lavished upon us the riches of his grace. Redemption, forgiveness, adoption. All these things have been given to us in abundance in Christ Jesus. It's unbelievable good news. Lastly, assurance. Election, adoption, redemption, forgiveness, assurance. And again, I know I'm just skimming the surface here, folks, but look at verses 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. Two pictures. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, and then who is the guarantee? Sealed and guarantee. Okay, let me unpack those quickly. We were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. This is the same word that is used in Matthew chapter 27 to speak of uh, Pilate commanding the Roman guards to go and to seal the tomb of Jesus. It's the same word that's used um, in Revelation chapter 20 when Satan will be thrown into the bottomless pit and God seals the pit. It's an idea of being totally locked in. Okay? Um, it's also used in Revelation chapter 7 to talk about the seal that God sets on their foreheads of, of his redeemed, of his elect uh, in the end times that we will be protected. It's also a mark of authority. It's the idea of a wax seal on an envelope with a signet ring, the ring of the king. You do not want to open the king's mail. You will get in big trouble. And that's the idea, is that God has set his seal upon us. And that seal is the very person, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Not only is it a seal, but it is the guarantee. And this word guarantee, again, is another technical word. It's literally the idea of a down payment. That when you give a down payment for your house or vehicle or whatever, that not only are you just putting it down, like, like, kind of like laying claim to it, but you're actually giving the first payment of many that are, go that are going to come. Now, in... I mean, for us, you know, some of us, you know, we're in the middle of a mortgage, you know, it's like we're, we're making payments over and over, and eventually it will fully be ours from the bank. But here's how it works with God, is that he's given us this down payment, this reality that the Holy Spirit, for all those who have believed, the Holy Spirit comes into your life. Into your life. You are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, and he is the foretaste of the kingdom of God. And, and God will absolutely, it's a guarantee that he's going to come back, and that he's going to redeem all those who already have the Holy Spirit. Um, but it's also a foretaste for us of the coming kingdom. And that is why, as crazy as it sounds, 
when you believe in Jesus, and I've said this before, when you believe in Jesus, when you are born again, when God brings about salvation in your life, you then become homesick for a place you've never been. Because the Holy Spirit, breath of heaven, has come into your life. Okay? Worship team, you can come up. We're going to close. God is the author of our salvation, and these are just a few, just a few aspects of our salvation. In election, God chooses us to be saved before the creation of the world. In adoption, we are strangers and orphans that stand before him as sons and daughters. In redemption, we, are slave, we stand before him as slaves that have been set free. In forgiveness, we stand before him as debtors who have had all of that debt that crippling debt, canceled. And in assurance, being sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, we are given the down payment that guarantees that God will not change his mind about our election, adoption, redemption, and forgiveness. But he will indeed finish the very work that he began before the foundation of the world, providing a bride for his son, an inheritance for his people, and, we will rec- and he will receive the praise that he rightly deserves. And all of this is to, as it says three different times in this passage, it is to the praise of his glorious grace. And again, that idea that God does not run off of calories. You know what he never gets tired of doing? He never gets tired of having us come to him as his children. He never gets tired of setting us free after we've wandered back in to the chains and bondage of sin. He never gets tired of canceling our debt and forgiving us, even though we run back to it over and over and over again. He never, ever gets tired of it. Most times, as, we close, as I close out a message, many times I'll give you a couple practical things that I think you should do or think about or questions to ask or something like that. But this passage is so, it's just not about us, guys. I mean, we're in here, but it's about what God has done. And this is probably the only time you'll ever hear me do this, but in response this morning, I almost think it's wrong to tell you now things that you need to do or things that we should do in light of this. The only thing that we can do, if you want to call it this, is for us to do what we do each and every week, and that is to stand up right now. So if you would, stand up. And I pray that with sincerity of heart that we could do what the text says we should do or what the text implies should be done in light of these things. And that is to give praise to his glorious grace. In other words, why why are all these things in here? Election, adoption, redemption, forgiveness, and I haven't even talked about justification and imputation. All these different aspects of our salvation, they're given so that we would sing They're given so that we would declare the wonders of him who has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That's what God has called us to do, folks. I pray that we would be a church where that would come naturally. And it would just be out of the overflow of our hearts. God, we pray that as we close now and as we sing this song, Lord, we pray that it would not just be words on our lips and have our hearts being far from you, but Lord, we pray that our hearts would be caught up to your throne, that you would inhabit the praises of your people, that your presence would change us, and that you would help us to delight in 
to delight in all that you have done for us. I pray that our lives would be to the praise of your glorious grace. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.